0: God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and atheist dive into the best that Cinema has to offer, and see if we find any parallels with gospel or any other Bible stories.
1: I'm filmmaker and drunken Santa, Giles Goff. And I'm test engineer and disbelieving ten year old, Phil Coleman. <laughs> I, I am I am Aged more than 10, <laughs> just, just, just for the record, you know. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And for our Christmas special, we'll be looking at Miracle on 34th Street, the 1994 version of the Christmas classic. We'll be looking at the origins of Father Christmas and
1: looking at the methodology of trying to prove whether Jesus exists. First of all, Phil, what do you think of this film? So, well, this isn't the first time I've seen this film. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can't remember the, la- the, the first time I ever watched it. Uh, but it's just one of those films where... It just fills you with warmth, you know, and, yeah. and and it's, I always forget that Richard Atterbury was in anything else other than Jurassic Park, um, <laughs> so to see to see him there and not trying to convince a load of investors to buy his dinosaur park off him, it was just a bit, it's got a lot to get used to, you know what I mean? What? Well, how mental is
0: it that Santa Claus was the ones that invented Jurassic Park, I, you know? I know, like, well, this is the thing. I, I'm just picturing, like, his sleigh being pulled by a pack of velociraptors throughout Well, the, to be fair, we do
1: see... Jurassic Park being a sequel of Miracle on 34th <laughs> Street, um, <laughs> you do actually get to see that. Uh, if you look closely, there is little nods to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I think this film's great. It's it's so, it's so just so heartwarming, and I often also forget there is a bit of a legal drama as well, which I think is just great. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. So, do you remember
0: as we were doing the the horror section, horror f- series that we did? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I said to you was, "This stuff is so dark and scary and depressing. We're going to do like a, a hugs and puppies episode." <laughs> well, this is our hugs and puppies episode.
1: Okay. To be fair, <clears throat> there are a lot of hugs in this. I don't remember seeing that many puppies, but metaphorical puppies. I can I can accept metaphorical puppies. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's time for Phil's Facts. Phil's Facts. So Miracle on 34th Street is a 1994 American Christmas fantasy comedy drama film. Try saying that five times fast. (laughs) Co-written and co-produced by John Hughes and directed by Les Mayfield. It is actually a remake of uh, the 1947 original, which won three Academy Awards. Uh, Uh And the story takes place between Thanksgiving Day and Christmas Day in New York City, and focuses on the effects of a department store Santa Claus who claims to be the real Santa. So, Sammy, the deaf girl, played by Samantha Krieger, was actually deaf, one of three Mm -hmm. deaf siblings from deaf parents. Richard Attenborough asked for her to not be rehearsed for the scene, so the surprise on her face when he signed to her was genuine. That's adorable. How cute is that? that's really sweet i just cuz i just imagine richard attenborough being as gentle as he is in that film as his character yeah. is and that just proves it to me yeah dickie attenborough was too good for this world ah dickie yeah the director of photography decided to put a light above each of the actors and actresses heads during all of the shots to give a distinct glow behind them and this is quite popular in the 1990s it helped to give a warm feel to the remake of a classic movie and apparently right, they did okay. that for a lot of remakes so there was just lights
0: just above people's heads then or yeah, or so, just because beha- so they, they, if it was if it was right above you get these
1: like dark well, sort of I shadows i think what they did is they they they'll, <clears throat> they'll have to have lit it like normally like you know the, the kind mm-hmm. of normal sort of lighting that you get for like a for a film, for like a family film of that kind, but then I imagine they had one effect light that was effectively backlighting uh, okay. all of the, all of the hair and that, and you can see it quite. Mm. It's like one of the first things I noticed about the film actually. When I put it on, it I was like, "I tell you what, this is one. Th- th- there is some squidgy glowiness going on here that I cannot well, put you, my finger you on." You
0: are so much better at lighting than <laughs> I am. I'll, I'll be like, "Okay, let's work on the script. Let's get the location, source the performers, and then I like Phil, make picture look good, nice, please, thank you.
1: And I'm just yeah. I'm just like, hey, don't worry, baby, I got you. <laughs> I, I don't say it like that's, that. You know? that's it. No, he says it exactly like oh, that, so, you know. I'm trying to... <laughs> let me keep my secrets, man. So, <laughs> at the end of the hearing, uh, Brian Bedford asks Chris Kringle if he would like to share a cab home. Chris replies that tonight he shall be somewhat busy, implying that he will be delivering presents. However, the time is already past midday on Christmas Eve in New York, meaning that he should have already <laughs> delivered presents to every country which is GMT plus seven or ahead, And it is, as it is already Christmas Day in those countries. Although, to be honest, he has got the perfect excuses like, oh, I'm sorry I'm late, mate, I was in court. <laughs> I was in court. <laughs> I had to go talk to the judge. <laughs> it's a great excuse as they go... Yeah, 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 yeah. According to an interview with Adam McKay, 20th Mm -hmm. Century Fox had planned to give this movie a small 800-screen release. I'm just going to stop there, actually, because a small 800-screen release, do you know what I mean? I'd like a a small one freaking screen (laughs) release for one of my films, but... Please don't. But hey... uh, there we, there we go. Anyway, uh, until, it, until it received a perfect 100% test screening score, which, which is pretty great. Instilled mm-hmm. with confidence, the studio tripled the marketing budget and gave it a wide release. But the strategy mm-hmm. backfired when it collapsed in the crowded 1994 holiday movie slate, notably compared to another more successful Santa Claus-themed movie, The Santa Claus. I heard that the original
0: Santa Claus movie... Uh, sorry the original Miracle on 34th Street
1: they actually released it in June. Yeah. <laughs> it was I, I yeah. believe the trailer had no mention of Christmas in it at all. Yeah, they tried Be- to
0: downplay the here. Like, it's not so much Christmas, of this Christmas. in this. Oh, on miracle thing. on 34th Street because the the studio boss said, well the thing is films released in the summer make more money. It's like
1: uh, mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's, it's a, a Christmas movie, you pleb. that said the guy from the original did win the oscar for for playing santa didn't he yeah he he did yeah mckay attributed its failure to its plot depicting bureaucracy out to disprove the existence of santa claus jokingly saying no one's going to say that santa claus sucks (laughs) and for the purposes of our listeners at this point whether
0: you believe that santa is real whether you believe that santa is not real we have literally no intention of disabusing you of any of your beliefs on this
1: episode, mm-hmm. yeah, you believe what makes you happy. Gimbal's, mm-hmm. which was in the original uh, as the competing um, store to Macy's, had gone out of business in 1987, hence, it was replaced by the fictional Shopper's Express, which I think is a much worse name. <laughs> yeah, be honest. it sounds like going, it sounds like you know, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to Selfridges. Mm-hmm. But also across the way, don't worry, there's a spa. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it it just—it just doesn't sound very good, does it? You know, it's—it doesn't. No. And last no, one true. Mm-hmm. in its original theatrical release, Twentieth Century Fox offered a full refund to any viewer who didn't enjoy the movie. Approximately one thousand and five hundred tickets were returned to the studio. Because <laughs> <laughs> I bet it, there's going to be some guy out there who heard that and just went, "Well, I mean, I liked it, but." i could do with me eight quid back yeah so you know yeah yeah or however much it was back then it was probably like 4p or some stupid fantastic absolutely thanks for that phil
0: now one way of looking at miracle on 34th street is that it's a story of how a kindly old man loses his job both Phil and I can attest to the fact that being unemployed can have a dramatic impact, not just on your economic well-being, but also on your sense of
1: worth. That's, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, you, There's so much attributed to it in terms of your worth, in terms of what you can do with your day, what you can do in your life, in terms of like how you furnish your life, whether you can have a family or not. It, it really does affect everything. So I spoke with
0: one person who is helping people to get out of this rut. I'll let her introduce herself.
2: So my name's Emma, I'm a resident in Manchester uh, and I have the privilege of doing lots of different things with my time but one of those things is I manage CAP Job Club.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, ever It's a real pleasure to have you on. Um, first of all, could you tell us about um, just what is Job Club or CAP Job Club?
2: CAP uh, is Christians Against Poverty and uh, CAP have been active across the nation uh, for years, decades now. They started off doing debt management with people, mm-hmm. but they've kind of branched out, um, aware that there are lots of people who are unemployed, who would like help to find work because if you've been unemployed for quite a long time it can be quite demoralizing Mm. um so cap job club is an eight-week course that we run but it's so much more than that yeah the way we do it we run the course itself goes through quite a lot of things that if you if you've done job courses before would be quite familiar like cvs interviews um looking at what employers really are looking for, looking mm-hmm. at our motivations for working um, and the advantages and disadvantages of going into work. And we look at all of those things on the course and we look at just the best ways to find work. But we also eat together together. We become a community together and our coaches provide one-to-one mentoring Mm. and coaching so that uh, people are helped in their circumstance, that this isn't a one-size-fits-all, this is very very individual and personalized
0: i think it's probably the, the community aspect oh, that's the the unique selling point really, here isn't really it It
2: really is yeah so we tend to run our courses starting 10 10 time until 12 mm-hmm. uh, very relaxed tea coffee nibbles around the table lots of chit chat um, and then come 12 o'clock we all eat together it's a main portion mm. of the course because we get to know each other really really well during that time lots of chat and actually it helps people to realize they're not in it on their own yeah it's not just about finding a job actually yeah it's about combating some of the isolation that can happen when you're out of work because your normal social circles aren't the same anymore and that sense of the hard slog of looking for work is shared with others, mm. which immediately relieves some of the pressure from that. So, yeah, So
0: You're quite new to this post, aren't you? Is there anything that sort of, what's the thing that's made the biggest impression on you so far?
2: So we've actually only run one course. So we've just finished our first course mm-hmm. um, with a, an amazing group of people. We've really loved getting to know uh, everyone on the course. But probably the biggest thing for me that I've noticed is well, that I've that's touched me doing it is just seeing people's confidence improve mm-hmm. across the course. Yeah. So, you know, eight weeks you get to know people and you realise at the end just how much more confident people are. And that's just beautiful to see. I love it.
0: Fantastic. So uh, Cap Job Club, it's it's an initiative that's available nationally as well as locally and where we are in Manchester, isn't it? If people want to know more, how do they find out about it?
2: probably in the first instance you could have a look uh, at capjobclubs.org online because they'll have lots and lots of information for you mm-hmm. if you were looking locally maybe in the sale area or Trafford um, then actually you could give me a call or you could give me an email so you could give me a call on 07419 219547 uh, or you could get me at emma barclay hyphen watt at capjogclubs.org that's a bit of a mouthful isn't it to be honest it's a bit of a mouthful without all the rest of the address on there my ma- my name itself yeah
0: i mean you, you you married somebody with some interesting double barrel choices oh, you know I did, yeah yeah awesome thank you so much for those Emma just for clarity we will put the info in the description there for no, you okay great. thank you so much for joining us today Emma i cannot tell you how much i appreciate
2: it hey it's a privilege to be here
3: Hi everyone, I'm Louisa-Jane Smith, host of the RE podcast, winner of the most boring podcast in the world. I'm popping in just to tell you that God in Film, a really bloomin' brilliant podcast, now has a Patreon page. Just go to www.patreon.com forward slash God in Film podcast to support the show. There you can find episode notes for every episode and the special God in Music podcast where Giles, Phil and Sepha go through the top 10 mainstream songs with a God connection. Here's a clip.
0: In my early career of, of teaching, I used to plug my iPod into, into the sound speakers in my classrooms. I remember one time I had Paramore's first album on, and one little kid, I think his name was Finn, you know, bright blue eyes, little button nose. He comes in and says... Sir, is this Paramore? But yeah, Finn, it is. Sir, do you like Haley Williams? I don't think we should really be talking about that, Finn. And then he goes, does that mean you would, sir, but she's just a bit too young for you,
2: you know? Wow. <laughs> like,
0: he's like 11 years old. like. You know? Man. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't wrong at the time, you know? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Hayley Williams like... was a bit too young for me at the time, but now I, I realise she's the same age as
1: my wife, so now it's probably... You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it reminds me. Of that I think I might in... be in with the shot, that's what I'm saying. You know? It reminds me <laughs> of the bit of Falcon the Winter Soldier where he's just kind of like, he's out of line, but he's right. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
3: out of all the podcasts in the whole world that aren't mine, these two are probably my favourite, combining faith, films and music. If you'd like to support the podcast, your money will go towards the running cost of the show and Giles and Phil will be eternally grateful. And if you can't support them financially, that's okay too. It's a really tough time for a lot of you out there right now. So you can just help out by telling someone about the show or liking and sharing the show on social media.
0: Now, Phil, our next guest came to my attention when she published a really fascinating thread of tweets about how the 1947 Paramount case impacted on the cancellation of the Batgirl film. Okay, that sounds cool. (laughs) Now, I appreciate mid-20th century legal cases surrounding the entertainment industry is probably one of my more niche interests, but what can I say? We love what we love.
1: I'll be honest,
0: as niche as it goes, yeah, that's that's pretty niche. Anyway, what she had to say in this interview that we that we did was just as fascinating. I'll let her introduce herself.
4: Hi, I'm Vaughn. Um, I am a PhD candidate at the University College London, um, and I'm studying film history, specifically the post-war period in Hollywood and the government's, the US government's kind of infiltration of Hollywood in that period through Agencies such as the FBI, the DOJ, SCOTUS, and um, the Congressional Committee of the House Committee on Un-American Activities, or as other people know it, HUAC. And to study that period and those government influences, I'm looking at a case study on Christmas films.
0: Warren, it is such an absolute joy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Speaking as somebody who loves the golden age of Hollywood, it's a very small niche group of people who I can find who will talk to me about <laughs> HUAC for ages or the <laughs> Paramount case mm-hmm. or all that sort of stuff so it is a real joy to have you on the show.
4: Thank you for having me I will talk your ear off about those things.
0: So. Awesome well, I'll take, we'll save that for another time uh, mm-hmm. for the moment can you tell me about Miracle on 34th Street how it came about and so on?
4: Yes so Miracle on 34th Street was a screenplay written by Valentine Davies in the 1940s. Uh, George Seaton the director read the screenplay play and fell in love with it and just mm-hmm. d- decided to run with it mm-hmm. um, so George Seaton directed the original that most people would know as the kind of classic film that a lot of Americans still watch it today uh, it was filmed in the Macy's building on 34th street and a lot of the scenes of the crowds in it are authentic they were actual shoppers in New York so it has a really kind of homey feel to it for people who are familiar with New York and then 50-some years later, or thereabouts, we get a remake in 1994. And it's really fascinating, the kind of differences between these films. This 94 version came about because in the 90s, um, after the Cold War, we started seeing Hollywood having a return to Christmas films. For many decades, they stopped making Christmas films at all. Oh, really? um, and just kind of turned to, especially in the 60s and 70s, Turn to TV specials, which oh, would, would be the kind of Rudolph and Frosty from Rankin Bass uh animations and A Year Without a Santa Claus. You also get the Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas in 1966, I believe. Uh right. So, okay. w- and we we also have this like surge of TV Christmas specials, like you see with uh the Star Wars holiday special in 78. Mm-hmm. So Hollywood really took a step back from Christmas films entirely until the 80s when you get these kind of experimental Christmas films like Gremlins and Die Hard, which <laughs> I do. We've
0: nailed our colours to the post straight away there. I love it.
4: I, yeah. If you want to debate it, you can at me on Twitter. We will nope. talk about it. But
0: no, no, I, uh, I, I wouldn't dream of such a <laughs> thing of it.
4: Once the Cold War ends and Hollywood's feeling a bit more confident about making Christmas films, we get this absolute rush of Disney films with A Muppet Christmas Carol in 92, and then in 94, you get uh, the Santa Claus. I believe 1990 is Home Alone. Like this this whole surge going on. Is, mm-hmm. is there
0: a correlation between the, the Cold War ending and Christmas films?
4: There is indeed. And I'm being kind of vague about this because it's the kind of crux of my dissertation. <laughs>
1: right,
4: <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> I still got to sell those books, but there, there is. There's, <laughs> there's a real correlation between the kind of sentiments of Christmas being mm. a collective time, a spirit to... Uh, give generously to others mm-hmm. and how that fits into the rhetoric against communism throughout the cold war gets really dicey so Hollywood decides especially after HUAC to kind of take a step back from a lot of the overwhelming sentiments of a Santa Claus figure giving gifts to all children regardless which... it's, it's, uh, are
0: we implying at some point that somebody in a boardroom somewhere set? Yes. <laughs> Hang on a sec. Mm-hmm. This Santa Claus fella, funny foreign name, dresses <laughs> entirely in red, gives out things to people equally irrespective. Are we saying that somebody thought Santa was communist?
4: Yes, we are, oh we are indeed. Um, <laughs> and that's that's kind of the, the overarching argument of my thesis. I love it, I love that it. That Hollywood really bent to the pressures to stay away from anything that could be even misconstrued as communist Wow. and in their eyes Santa was that along with some other Christmas tropes and and traditions that do play out more in my research but
0: hang
1: on
4: um,
0: obviously we're talking let's say like 40s so we've still got the Hayes code in place at this point haven't we more or less yes so Hollywood are ultra liberal compared to the rest of the uh, the country at least sort of area so is this effectively a form of like self censorship going on they're afraid that yes. this that more is going to get imposed on them
4: yes um definitely so wow. that's the blacklist essentially is an extension of the yeah. Hays code And um, silencing any voices that they think could be subversive or problematic, even if they don't think they're subversive, which they specifically don't think that they are subversive. And they say that in the Waldorf statement when they established the blacklist that there has never been any subversion in their films and there will not be subversion in their films, but they're still going to make the blacklist to appease the federal McCarthy, agents within so. Hollywood. Yeah.
0: That, sorry, that was fantastic. We kind of went off at a tangent there, but <laughs> it strange. was. Uh, I, I was interested and I don't care what mm. anyone else thinks. So <laughs> Miracle on 34th Street, which is the mm. actual thing that we're talking about. How does the, the 94 version uh, differ from the 1947 version?
4: On a surface level, they're very similar films, very similar scripts. The department store is still the ultimate good guy at the end of the film and mm-hmm. they still make a contradictory, hypocritical stance of commercialism is bad, even though the entire film is <laughs> structured to make sure the department store is the good guy in the end.
0: Yeah, your commercialism is bad, our commercialism is Ours is, is great. Santa loves <laughs>
4: ours. But the differences are, the first one is that the 1994 Miracle on 34th Street is not actually set at Macy's, so it is not 34th Street. <laughs> It's set at a fictional Mm Coles, which is C-O-L-E-S, as opposed to the Coles that is actually in the U.S. And that decision was because Macy's said that you couldn't top the original, Mm. but that's their official stance on it. But there is some speculation about uh, that decision because Macy's was in a bit of a financial difficult place in the the mid-1990s, and they did not want anything any kind of publicity at the the moment, which is quite bizarre because the original film did phenomenal publicity for Macy's. So you would think that they would want that again, but they yeah. were in some kind of legal and fiscal jeopardy. So they said, absolutely not, we're not gonna draw attention to ourselves right, right. now. Okay. So that's the first major difference. Um, and as I said, with the original ni- uh, 47 version, you can really kind of feel the New York aspect in that film. There's so much that just really grounds it in New York And the the remake was shot in Chicago. Um, So there's a lot of differences just in the feel of those films, in the cities of those films, because it's still purporting to be in New York. Um, The second issue is that at the ultimate court scene, assuming everybody's seen this film and knows Mm -hmm. what we're talking about, at the ultimate court scene in the 47 version, the post office delivers letters to Santa to the courthouse, because they saw Chris Kringles on the news and the postal workers were just kind of fed up with the overflowing letters to Santa. So they just bring them there to dump them all. And the lawyer's argument is that um, if the, the federal government, if the postal workers recognize this man as Santa Claus, mm-hmm. then legally the judge also has to because the federal government tops his office. In the 1940, in 1994 version rather, um, that, Ultimate kind of gotcha moment is because the judge receives a Christmas card with a one dollar bill in it, and on the back it has "In God We Trust" circled. Yeah, and he realizes that if the federal government, if the the Department of the Treasury, can recognize God on their currency, then the state of New York can recognize Santa Claus. Yeah, and yeah, totally exactly fine. Both of them have this kind of um, federal versus state level political aspect that's very fascinating. Um, But that major difference between the post office just recognizing that this man is Santa, so therefore he must be. And the the federal government being able to recognize God, Mm -hmm. that's a huge disconnect. And I find it really fascinating. (laughs) Yeah,
0: no, it's absolutely fascinating. Listen, Vaughn, I could talk to you absolutely all day about this and (laughs) I'm sure any number of any other things. Uh, I'd better cut it short though. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate it.
4: Of course. Thank you for having me.
1: Okay, Phil, that was Vaughn. What do you think? I absolutely love love, 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 love that the American government was just like Santa Claus sounds like a damn commie. You know, just (laughs) I just, of course they bloody well did. Do you know what I mean? It just... (laughs) Oh dear like oh. I think I just, that's that's something that will live in my head rent free every mm. Christmas now and I'm going yeah. to the US this Christmas as well so I might ask some questions about that I think that's hilarious but um yeah no I thought she was I thought she, I thought it was really interesting what she was talking about uh, with regards to you know that sort of faith-based ending because I did wonder about that myself you know like having mm. faith to talking about the idea of having faith in someone whether they are who they say they are or not. Yeah, um, it, it just it, it, there's a lot of questions to be asked and answered there. I think and and, and her addressing that, um, yeah, I just thought that was really interesting and I thought uh, extremely knowledgeable person. Yeah, she was
0: phenomenal to talk to, uh, absolute joy, absolutely. Anyway, now it's time for
2: <gasps> what's that? Well, well, well,
5: well, what's going on? What? What's going on? Did you losers think you could get through a whole season without me? I don't think so. Apart from anything else, you need me to keep your listening figures up, don't you? Let's be
1: honest. Sorry, Claire. You
0: you were keeping, so, so, sorry, Claire. You thought sorry. you were
5: keeping me away with the horror films, which I will not touch with a bar, barge pole. But Christmas, <laughs> come on.
1: That's fair enough. I mean, Christmas is a little a little more cuddly. Yeah. So. yeah.
5: I, I, I'm, I'm
1: sorry, darling. What a what a tremendously bad oversight on my part.
5: Yeah, damn
0: right. <laughs> is is there anything you would uh, like to add to help our terribly, terribly, terribly low uh, listening figures?
5: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would like to talk about the origins of Santa Claus, please.
0: Fantastic. Sounds great. Let's do it. It's
5: very interesting. So, uh, Santa Claus, Father Christmas, started out, believe it or not, as a Greek Greek bishop called St Nicholas, who was born around AD 280 in what is now Turkey, and he became the patron saint of children. Largely due to two stories that sprang up around him. Mm-hmm. First of all, uh, that he came across three daughters who were about to be sold into prostitution by their financially strapped father. Um, oh dear. So it's not the lightest of stories. Um, <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, a, a lot of Christmas narratives really do play down the
1: sort of sex trafficking aspect of
0: yeah, it. You know? Yeah,
5: yeah.
1: I, I mean, and not only that, it is a Thursday. You <laughs> yeah. know, like, like good grief!
5: Um, but he, uh, what he did, he threw three bags of gold down the chimney to pay for their dowries, um, and they happened to land in the girl's stockings that were drying by the fire. <laughs> Which I think is really cute. Um, so that's where that, that started. <laughs> and the other story is that he, he resurrects back to life three young boys who are murdered and pickled in a barrel by an innkeeper.
1: Right. Yeah. You know how I said this is a more warm and cuddly topic? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not not feeling very warm or cuddly right now. If anything, I feel like I should lock my doors twice.
4: (laughs) It
5: gets better. So, yeah, due to that... Oh, good! (laughs) Due to that, he becomes the patron saint of children. And St Nicholas was actually very popular in medieval times, Um, and it led to a tradition of leaving gifts for children on the 6th of December, which was St Nicholas's day. Um, and in the Netherlands Sinterklaas. Um which is their name for St Nicholas, impersonators uh, dressed in red bishops' costumes to entertain the crowds. So you can start to see the little traces of it coming together now. Um, obviously, in, in medieval times, Christmas was largely about getting drunk and causing wild havoc. Um, so he was not quite the fa- figure we know now. I mean, not, not
1: much has
0: changed, has
5: <laughs> no,
4: no. <it?
0: laughs> Replace wild havoc with photocopying your bum and we've pretty much got the same
1: concept.
5: Yeah, that's basically
1: a work Christmas party, right? Yeah.
5: <laughs> So when the Reformation happened, uh, saints fell rather out of favour and baby Jesus was deemed a more appropriate gift giver. Um, and he was known in Germany as Das Christkindl or Chris Kringle.
0: Ah, there I'm he is.
5: Um, and at the same time as all this is going on in England, there is a Father Christmas figure who's a symbol of the christmas season who developed over time as a merry old man who presided over christmas parties this might have partly been connected to the lord of misrule thing that they had going on where a person was appointed in rich households to oversee christmas celebrations and like as far as i can establish just make sure everyone gets sufficiently drunk i think was was the idea and just cause a bit of chaos um, which is great. Um, in 1616, Ben Johnson writes a play called Christmas, His Mask, um, where the character of uh, Christmas uh, appears in old-fashioned clothes and a long, long thin beard, calling himself Old Christmas. Um, and he's quite a sort of a fatherly <laughs> character, but it's still very much about mischief and feasting and parties mm-hmm. at this stage. Thankfully, Father Christmas and Santa Claus survived Puritan attempts to ban all fun. Um, yeah. And in the Victorian era <laughs> in the Victor- Blanket
1: ban Yes, pretty much
5: Yeah, In the Victorian era, Christmas changed to focus more on family life, children and religion Rather than delinquency, getting drunk and eating too much um, So Santa Claus and Father Christmas kind of changed to fit and became merged into one figure the Night Before Christmas poem helped cement his more modern image as a twinkly old gentleman who brings presents for children. And by 1880, he's he's pretty recognisable as the figure that we know now. Um, Interestingly, the idea that Coca-Cola invented the modern image of him is actually a myth. They started using him in the adverts in the 1930s and he was in his red suit way before then. Uh, so that's okay. Not that's true. That's oh, OK. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. That's a very brief and potted history of, of Santa
1: we should uh, name our own version of Santa since everyone else has done it yeah. um, I vote Big Papa Crimbo <laughs> <also>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if no objections we can move forward with well, the motion of Big Papa Crimbo in, uh, in Wales he's Sean Corn. <laughs> um, <laughs> didn't say that again sure. Sh- sh- Sean Corn, um, Sean, Sean Corn. Yeah, yeah. Less, less of the Cornish accent, but yeah, you get the idea. Yeah, yeah. um, I'm so I'm sorry. I'm 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 really trying at my regional accents,
0: yeah. but they're so
5: bloody yeah. And, you know? yeah.
0: Um Yeah. Yeah. Um, all all those in favour of Big Papa Crimbo. Aye.
5: Aye.
1: Aye. Aye. There we go. Yeah, okay. Aye. Motion carried.
0: <laughs> Sweetheart, thank you so much for barging your way into our episode today. We really like it.
5: You're very Welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Claire. <laughs> Thanks, it was really guys. good to see you. Good to be back.
1: Thanks. Now it's time for... <sighs> Finding the Faith in the Film. I've got to do it quietly, so... da 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 <laughs> Hello, welcome to the God in Film ASMR episode. <laughs> I'm your host, Phil Coleman. There you go, there you go. That's about as much ASMR as I know. Okay,
0: let's deal with the easy stuff. I love America... American films, TV, comics and music have been the soundtrack and wallpaper of my life. I'm not uncritical of it in the same way that I'm not uncritical of my own country. But from the things I have seen and the people I've met, I'm putting it firmly in the yay column. Uh, And and, and Phil, since you fathered an American, I imagine you've probably got quite a warm feelings towards him in general. I mean, half
1: American, but yes. <laughs> no, of course. I mean, I, I'm, I am married to an American, so um, I, yeah. I can't really ha- I can't really dislike America that much, can I? Um, yeah,
0: certainly not when you're around the uh, the dinner table at Christmas. You
1: know? No, well, this as I as I mentioned earlier, that will be that will be the f- this uh, this year is actually the first Christmas I'll be staying in uh, in America for an mm. American Christmas, which I've never experienced before, and I think it's going to be most merry indeed. Sir. Just try not to mention the war of 1812 and I'm sure you'll be fine, okay? I don't even I don't know out about it, so oh, I can't see mate. myself I can't see myself bringing it up. <laughs>
0: okay, well short version, right? James Madison basically decides he's going to pick a fight with Britain and the British basically Invade Washington DC. hate there's they they sort of storm the White House. They have dinner that was being served, and then burn the White House down. So that was pretty badass. Anyway, that's just
1: a yes, separate you know, thing. The- there's a reason everybody hates the Brits, isn't it? do you know what I mean? Because we've not exactly, not historically been belting. Yeah, but like that's we didn't start that one. That's one of
0: the few ones where it's not actually our fault, you know. So oh, okay, oh. it's a little bit of don't start, nothing won't
1: be nothing, you know. <laughs> it just reminds me of the, of the of the phrase "f around and find out." <laughs> oh dear, we're getting so off track as, as I'm sure you
0: can tell. We we love America. So one of the things I found so confusing is this seemingly inherent contradiction at the heart of America. Separation of church and state is foundational to the United States. The term was first coined by Thomas Jefferson, but the concept goes back even further with philosophers like John Locke and even theological scholars like Martin Luther proposing this kind of separation. Now, this is crucial because in order for a society to function, it needs to be for the benefit of all the people who live in it, not just what certain groups believe. If you base a government on a theocracy, then a crime against the state becomes a crime against God, and that is a real problem when it comes to helping people establish an
1: authentic relationship with God. That's that's quite serious as things yeah. go. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. God's just there. Like, look, I, I did say, <laughs> yeah, I'll get the, I'll get the, I'll get my own police on you. Actually, it's getting a bit weird. That. Yeah.
0: <laughs> now it's important to note that whilst Britain could. Be technically seen as a theocracy as King Charles is both the head of state and head of the church in practice he's really neither of those things as the head of government is the Prime Minister and the de facto head of the church is the Archbishop of Canterbury also mm-hmm. while there are in fact 12 bishops who sit in the House of Lords the House of Lords Currently has somewhere around seven hundred and eighty-six members, which if you're interested, is really something that should be reformed, but we'll leave that for another time. America has has to worry about precisely none of this. And whilst religious lobbyists are a big deal, the government remains a a steadfastly secular institution. So with all that in mind, what's with the whole in God
1: we trust motto? This seems to be a very American thing. Mm where God is seems to be like a foundational part of everything to do with America. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like right down to whether they should have guns or not, for example. Um and whatever's on their dollar bills, mm. um, their reason for like their family values. There's there's quite a lot that, that's where God penetrates into the into yeah. the American society. And I don't know where it stems from.
0: I mean like obviously we've got God save the King, now, King. but that, that, you know, that we,
1: dates this episode, doesn't it? <laughs> we
0: were we weren't pretending to be anything other than just a crazy uh, country that sort of had a load of stuff that was still hanging around that we didn't need anymore,
1: you know? It's like, God saved the king because we've tried and I don't know what we're going to do, guys. It's, it's, it's up to God now, you know? Yeah. How can you say you're keeping God
0: out of the business of government and at the same time say that in God you trust on all your money? You know, it seems a bit of an odd one. So, believe it or not, there has been several court cases about this. There are literally organisations about keeping religion out of government and apparently in Lambeth versus the Board of Commissioners of Davidson County, 2004. A federal district court in North Carolina determined that the inscription in God we trust on the facade of the building does not violate the separation of church and state. Okay. So, okay, fine. Fine. The following year, the Fourth Circuit of Court Appeals affirmed the lower court's decision. So in 2006, a US judge wrote New Dao versus Congress of the United States. The national motto is excluded from the First Amendment significance because the motto has no theological or ritualistic impact and is of a purely secular and patriotic and ceremonial character. The words, like, in God we what? trust, he said, constitute, in effect, a secular national slogan what no it sounds mental when you dig into it what they're saying is because it's been said so often and because it's so hooked in to like american identity it's kind of lost all theological
1: meaning i can see the argument for it i think it's an absolute load of codswallop. yeah but i see where they're coming from especially from like a legal standpoint yeah i, I can see the logic it's, but, but good grief. It is,
0: you know? it's a, it is a mental one. But then again, Phil, if you sang the national anthem, God Save the King, and they'd be like, but hang on, Phil's an atheist. Phil doesn't believe in God. So why is Phil singing God Save the King? How does he manage to somehow combine those two things that don't make any, that don't sort of maybe, sit well maybe, together at all?
1: Maybe I'll start singing, won't someone save the king? <laughs> you know, like or something like that. Just to find it, I'll find like a, you know, like a secular mm. version in there somewhere, you know but just
0: the idea that through repetition it's lost all meaning and therefore isn't a religious statement anymore i thought was absolutely fascinating
1: that's that's some real mental gymnastics yeah. right there like yeah. you can see how lawyers make a lot of money <laughs> oh yeah 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 oh yes so the next bit is a little bit trickier so strap in i, I had a feeling this was coming so let's let's <laughs> let's go guys let's do this so let's read the
0: following speech from the judge that concludes the court case He says the young lady who just approached the bench presented me with this Christmas card and this. It's a one dollar bill. It's going to be returned to her shortly, but by presenting me with this bill, she reminded me that it's issued by the Treasurer of the United States of America and it's backed by the government and the people of the United States of America. Upon inspection of the article, you will see the words, In God We Trust. Now, we're not here to prove that God exists, but we are here to prove that being just as invisible and yet just as present exists. Federal government puts its trust in God. It does so on faith and faith alone. In the will of the people, it guides the government, and it is it is and was their collective faith in a greater being that gave and gives cause to this bill's inscription. Oh, sorry. Now, if the government of the United States can issue its currency bearing a declaration of trust in God without demanding physical evidence of the existence or non-existence of a greater being, then the state of New York, by a similar demonstration of the collective faith of its people, can accept and acknowledge that Santa Claus does exist and exists in the person of Kris Kringle. Case dismissed. Uh, I mean,
1: flipping heck. There's quite a lot. There's quite a bit to There's quite there's quite a lot there. It's quite the monologue. Yeah. Really. Flipping it. Can you imagine? It's a good one. It's like <laughs> it's it's for him to have come up with that on the spot, <laughs> even as a yeah. judge. Yeah, I'm just yeah. like, bro, you took some you took some well, mad elocution know, lessons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, you know he didn't come up with the spot, he's an actor, he was just saying lines that were written down for
1: him. You what? No, you can't okay. no. no you can't. Okay, Phil. That we'll, wasn't live.
0: We're gonna we'll have a little chat off mic, and we'll we'll,
1: we'll sort I, all this I out. I thought later. Richard Attenborough look good for
4: a dead guy. You <laughs> know,
1: <laughs> I am so sorry to the estate of the Attenboroughs. I am just really sorry. I'm just really sorry. In fact, bloody David's gonna come up and be like, "Hey, right, yeah," <laughs> knock on my door like. like, <coughs> just like Look, Dave's, Dave's got hey. some things to say. you know? Well, I've been all around the world. I've been in front of gorillas. I can handle <laughs> you. I don't know why it's from Warrington. Because <laughs> they're, they're all from Warrington. They're all I
0: from think we Warrington in them. my head. Yeah, like the cradle of civ- human civilization is Warrington. Yeah,
1: that's where the primordial soup started. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of things
0: to say. <laughs> You're making me laugh too much i'm so sorry please continue okay so what's interesting here is that the judge doesn't actually make a judgment based on the weight of evidence for or against chris kringle what he does is essentially use an element of equivalence he says if the u.s government could believe in god without evidence then the state of new york can believe in santa claus without evidence in essence if they could believe x then i can believe y if this person believes it then i can believe it too interestingly This is probably why the most effective form of evangelism is one-to-one, like, friendship evangelism.
1: So, like, Mm. have you heard of Billy Graham? You know, the name rings a bell. Okay, Uh, Billy Graham was, like,
0: this mid-20th century kick-ass evangelist. He'd have these massive, like, events where, like, (laughs) tons of people would give their life to Christ and, you know, probably tons of people would change their mind on the bus home because there wasn't that kind of personal relationship with him so he he got lots of people saved and the my sort of spiritual ancestry if you like goes back to billy graham because the person who got me to become a christian became a christian at a billy graham event Oh, okay me. i see
1: yeah i, but, I love the term uh, kick-ass evangelist he was a kick-ass evangelist I'm like, flying like this in. dude this dude <laughs>
0: was like evangelist to to the queen he was like a, a spiritual advisor to pretty much every president his son frankly graham really not as impressive predominantly because of his support of Trump. But anyway, like, that's a whole other oh, thing. I, I thought you were going to say, like, because he works at Target or something yeah. like that. Billy Graham, yeah. awesome. Franklin Graham sucks. That's the system that we, that's the best way to put it. To be honest, if he supports Trump, that's an auto, that's an auto exactly. suckage point. Yeah, you know I mean, yeah. Right? do not Pasco. do not collect 200. Anyway, yeah. whilst you got, like, high numbers of people, it's quite a low percentage of people getting saved, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. One-to-one witnessing is the most successful. It's the best tool that we've we've got, really. And Mm. I think it's because personal credibility is so crucial. And that's because in order for society to function, we have to trust people. It's impossible for human beings to corroborate every single piece of information they're given. So a lot of the time, we have to trust that someone has given us information based on that person's reputation for credibility so for example you said that you went to a catholic school growing up right i did but i've got no evidence of that and i don't even know what catholic school it was and i can't prove or disprove that you went to a catholic school so why should i believe you went to a catholic school and it's because i have to trust you because if we don't have a basic foundational trust for each other then
1: society pretty much collapses do you know what i mean Well, I mean, I had to tell you that because if I told you I was raised by wolves, you probably wouldn't have believed me. So (laughs) I wasn't raised by wolves. I did go to
0: a Catholic school. So anyway, I want to tell you about a guy who needed to know more about Christianity. So he asked some people that he knew were credible. There's this guy back in the 80s. Lee Strobel was an award-winning investigative journalist and legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. You probably might not know this, but your wife might know something about the, the Ford Pinto. How it was basically like a death trap as uh, as cars go. Yeah,
1: I am aware this of this was that was an eighties. It was an eighties car, right? Something seventies, eighties.
0: This was a car that was basically because of where they put the the um, petrol tank. If somebody collided with it at something like twenty miles an hour, it would explode. You know, and Lee Strobel was one of the people that uncovered that. Well,
1: that's, so anyway, that's something that got past quality assurance. Quite uh, yeah, that was. That's yeah. not good. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But it does show that that Lee Strobel knew how to dig into things. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, um, no, that's, he's, he, uh, he discovered that pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> so.
0: so when his wife Leslie became a Christian, Strobel was an atheist at the time. And like so many disapproving husbands, he got dragged along to church with his wife. And as best I can tell, he decided he was going to disprove the existence of God out of... From what I can see, pure spite.
1: I'd see where he's coming from. It seems quite mean spirited.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah you know, yeah but, but you know if you got the time so what he did was he actually interviewed 13 leading scholars and experts posing to them the tough questions he had as a skeptic and this formed the basis of his book uh, the case of christ which is what i'm reading at the moment i say reading i've got the audiobook of it so i'll be having these like fascinating observations about sort of biblical scholarly stuff whilst pushing riley on the swings you know
1: <laughs> Sorry, Riley, I'm just getting to a juicy
0: bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, more, more often than not, I have to rewind a bit. No, 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 I lost that track of that. So yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I'll, I'll just give you some, some examples of some of the stuff that he talks about. So first of all, uh, a friend of mine recently said that part of the reason she couldn't believe in Jesus was that all the evidence for him
1: comes from the Bible, and that's biased. And I was like, uh, okay. Unless it is meant to be without bias for a specific purpose surely all storytelling has some kind of bias yeah potentially
0: but the, y- i guess know? the point the point i'm trying to make was the bible wasn't a biased text the bible was a collection of texts about Jesus, and they they worked out which bits were the, one, the the text that they thought were legit. They left out the bits that they thought weren't legit, so that's why.
1: To be fair, it did come from many perspectives as well. So yeah, like yeah, you know, yeah, by, yeah. I suppose bias at that point, the only bias is, is that they all looked at Jesus and went, yeah, sort of got him. Yeah, but well, <laughs> the interesting
0: thing is there's a fair bit of extra biblical evidence, stuff that we've talked about the Apocrypha, we've talked about mm-hmm. um, stuff that this isn't that. This isn't like that sort of bible fanfic thing this is <laughs> other people writing at the time who mentioned jesus okay so oh, this w- there's this one dude right tacitus who's a roman historian and a politician now he is going to be biased completely in favor of rome and therefore biased against anything that is uh, a danger to to rome right sure. so he writes he writes these kind of annals of history covering like um, the death of Augustus in like 14 AD, going all the way up to like 96 AD, and he writes about like the fire of the Great Fire of Rome, okay? Where sure. Emperor Nero. So, I'll read out the bit to you that um, that I've got, okay? Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class of hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their centre and become popular. (laughs) accordingly an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty then upon their information an immense multitude was convicted not so much for the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind so basically what he's saying is that all these christians we rounded them up tortured them they gave us some names and then we tortured them some more they probably didn't set fire to the city but we just hate those guys
1: anyway but the interesting thing is right I mean, yeah. I mean, like, I I mean, I told you. you know, it's a bit bloody. It's, that's not exactly like you know, regular Tuesday evening. Yeah. So it?
0: Like the Romans, in so many ways, not a great bunch of lads, you know. No. But it's interesting <laughs> <Demonstrically> because <so. laughs> it, it's interesting because the it talks about this guy Christus who was uh, executed suffered the extreme penal, penalty, which is execution. I'm guessing uh, that's uh, Christ. The, Pontius Pilatus, Pilatus, yeah. So Christus, you know, it's it's Christ with an us attached to, it, attached to it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, we have, like, extra biblical information saying that Christ was executed by Pontius Pilate. Like, we don't know anything else about him from that, but we know there was this dude, he was executed by this other dude. Now, that then, obviously, that backs up what we've got in the Gospels. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, it... It it doesn't say anything about his character. The only, the only no. thing I did pick up on is just that it did talk about like how his influence seemed to start things in Judea yeah. and and across the way and where all things... I can't remember what he said now. It, sound, it sounded very much akin to what a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Do you know what I mean? Like it was that kind yeah. of like feeling. Yeah, I love the fact that he's slogging off his hometown, you know. Oh, yeah. It's just like, look, no one likes where they're from. Right? Yeah. You know, just, we've all been there. I mean, I've not been to Judea, but you know, I've all been in that position. Yeah. Um, I, that's the only thing I picked up on uh, with that, is that it seems as though, I mean, I suppose the only bias I could really co- could pick up on was the fact that he disapproved of everything that Jesus was doing at the time. Yeah. And, and very clearly was like, well, he's dead now, which is probably a good thing, because... Scumminy. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like that's that's where it came from. So Yeah. I, I guess that just reaffirms something that's already in the Bible.
0: It's really yeah, it's really interesting because it's looking at Jesus from a Position that is biased against him, but it's still affirming that he existed. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. the another one is this guy called Josephus Flavius. He was a Jew in first century Israel. He fights against the Romans in the in the sort of Judeo Roman War, but he surrenders to them in and in around sixty seven eight or 80 something like that. He's forced into being a slave to the emperor, I think Vespasian, and he one of the things he does. When he's granted his freedom, is he writes a history book on on the Jewish people? Calls it the Antiquities of the Jews, and it's there's like tons and tons of books of it. There's there's the two, hell. yeah, there's Sound two off. references, right? <laughs> okay, it describes the the one reference he has describes the high priest uh, Ananias, and he talks about how this guy Ananias assembled the sanhedrin of judges and brought them before the brother of Jesus who was called Christ whose name was James and some others and when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law he delivered them to be stoned
1: yeah, oh okay. yeah that, that yeah. must that must be the logical progression <laughs> well like
0: he's a high priest who was like high high sort of jewish priest like these dudes are all going around saying hey Jesus was the son of God and they're like no we don't like that so of course they get stoned but the the thing about that that quote is that it tells us about James as the brother of Jesus right so it's like okay well now we know James who is also mentioned in the Gospels we've got independent evidence for that dude existing and also the brother of jesus so again more more stuff for jesus existing and that line who was called the who was called christ now do you want to hear something weird there is another quote there's another quote from josephus okay now just 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 have a listen to this one now there was about this time jesus a wise man if it be lawful to call him a man For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold, and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. Now, that is a lot more Jesus yay
1: than the first one, isn't it? It's the bit where he says, and they appeared alive to him again. Uh, For he appeared alive to them again the third day. Because that talks about the resurrection, but from a third person perspective, from somebody who isn't actually associated with Jesus. Yeah.
0: So here's the the thing. That's fascinating. so we've got he was the christ and then in the same book we've got the brother of jesus who was called christ so what's going on there it's like is he the christ or do some people say he's the christ something's not did, quite working there is he it got you, know? Mixed up?
1: <laughs> you know it's That's like, it's like the difference
0: between and then there was phil who was mates with giles or and then there was phil
1: who some say were mate was mates with Giles. Do you see what it was like? Well, which... and there was Phil who was mates with Giles, and then there are then there was Phil who was Giles. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, eh, no, definitely separate people. But thank you.
0: <laughs> so here's the the idea, right? A lot of biblical scholars suggest that this first quote contains like a nucleus of truth, but it's been a little bit embellished over the years. You know, sure. That bit about he was the Christ and then the for Christ. he appeared to them alive again the third day. So uh, what's the suggestion is, is that there was some bit in there talking about Jesus and being condemned by Pilate and the cross and the rest of it. And somewhere, someone along the line has added little bits just to kind of beef it up. Do you see what I mean?
1: I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, there's, there was no real... Um way to there's no real way to sort of curate these things in terms of credibility like yeah. you know, there was no there was no wanting to proofread it and also check like the traceability of the author for example like who were they, was it just this one person or was there several contributors to this and they just they just well, attributed it, it to one author you know like well, no, it could I, have been added to it I'm pretty
0: confident that it's I mean people are pretty confident that it's, that it's all come from the one author what we're saying is that somebody who copied it out there made a few cheeky little additions. I think they call I think the term they yeah. call it is a an interpolation. The thing I find interesting is that it's biblical scholars and in particular it's like Christian scholars who are pointing this out and saying, "Look, this there's this thing. We think some bits of it are not legit, but some of it might be, you know, because it would be so easy" For me, as a Christian, to be like, "Oh, look,
1: this guy who wasn't in the Bible said that Jesus was the Christ." Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I, I do appreciate the fact that these Christian scholars—they're looking at this piece of text, and they're not just going, "Look, there he is. He's yeah. J- it's Jesus. There he is. Look, right, okay, absolute belief." You know, it's more of a case of no. Let's like we need to make sure that we're being you know nuanced and critical. About Absolutely, it because, because you know if we just go. Fervent into this, we're going yeah. to look like idiots because conf- <laughs> you
0: know? confirmation bias is like a massive thing, isn't it? You know, so it's something absolutely I find it really helpful when people point out and go, Yeah, this bit's a little bit sketchy, this bit's a little bit. Yeah. Well. It, it reminded me all the way back in like our, our second episode when we interviewed Professor Field and he was talking about the Holy Grail, yeah, and he said. It's a lot of fun to look into, but it's really hard to know anything for sure,
1: you know? Yeah. Confirmation bias is the reason I don't go on WebMD. So, you know, <laughs> like, you know as long as I don't go on that, I can't convince myself I've got cancer. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's all good. So the next thing I wanted to talk about was like writing gaps. Obviously, we as 21st century people have a pretty high standard for what we would consider decent evidence don't we you know it's like cctv dna um stuff I mean, yeah you know, like Consid- digital traces. all the of things. different
1: sort of ways we have to catch people out nowadays in terms of placing them somewhere at a certain time we, we expect a certain level of evidence yeah I which think.
0: obviously when you're looking into antiquity you don't have any of those things you know So I think we can both agree that how close you are to an event happening increases the likelihood that what you're saying is going to be accurate. Yeah, if you were
1: down road from Jesus and you were writing about it, there's a lot to say that your account might be genuine. Exactly.
0: Now, interestingly, if we look at somebody like Alexander the Great, who reigns uh, 336 to 323 BC, and the earliest surviving biography of him is written around 40 A.D. What's that going to be? That's like three hundred and sixty something years later, and even then, the Holy earliest man- even in the earliest surviving manuscript we have comes from like the ninth century. So we don't know how many times that's been copied out. So it's like the chain of evidence has a few pretty big gaps in it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it could it, it could have just been Alexander the Okay. Do you know what I mean? For all yeah. we know.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but if we assume that Jesus dies around the year thirty A.D., then some very rough calculations suggest that the first gospels
1: could have been written as soon as 30 years later that's still within living memory yeah i mean you're likely to maybe have a little bit of deterioration of memory but it's still going to be fairly fresh as in the people who witnessed it will still be likely alive or at the very least be able to tell it in detail to people who are still who, who are alive as well
0: Exactly. I mean, like, my idea is that, obviously, in Jewish culture, you were a man when you were 13 years old. So my theory that I've been working (laughs) with is that a lot of the disciples following Jesus probably would have been teenagers, you know, with probably Peter being one of the eldest and John being one of the the youngest, you know what I mean? So a lot of them are still going to be round in, like, 62 to 64, 68 A.D., which we've by which time we've probably got the Gospel of Mark, Gospel say, of they, Luke. They're,
1: they're gonna you're gonna have some serious trauma.
0: Yeah. Well the, the <laughs> point the point I'm getting at though is that if I write about the life and works of somebody whilst that person's contemporaries are still alive, if I write something that's out of line, somebody's gonna pick me up on it. Go, Oh yeah. No, I... actually that wasn't right. And you'd be like, oh, Sorry, I'll take that bit out.
1: Yeah, no, you're, you're going to have people who go, look, I was literally there. I was literally there, dude. I you know, saw like it just, happen. I'm gonna just going to correct you. You know? <laughs> yeah,
0: you can interview those people yourself. You can talk to people. There's going to be room for error because there's somebody might remember things differently. I quite like that in the gospel accounts, they don't always match up 100% all of the time because if you or I went out and had to sort of saw a crime happen... We gave our sort of testimony to the police and it was exactly the same. The police would be like, That sounds a bit sketchy.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I think that says a lot about authenticity in the sense of you can tell there's no corroboration between the, the, the apostles to say that they went, Let's coordinate, make sure we get our story straight. They didn't really well, do it, that.
0: We have a little bit of a cake and I eat it in this scenario, right? Because, like, Mark is, like, the earliest gospel that comes out, and that's the newsflash one. It's like, all right, listen, here's the important stuff. Shut up. this gospel. Is the, boom, boom, boom. And we talked, that for a dollar. Yeah, you know? and we talked about, like, that, the idea of, like, a cue a or a quell document. It's like a theoretical sort of, like, book of sayings according to Jesus, you know, mm. um, that's been lost now. And that we think that Matthew and Luke might have sort of taken a bit from this sayings document and a bit of what Mark said and kind of put them together. So there is corroboration on those three Gospels, but John whole other thing you know like the gospel of john is like more poetry than than anything else in a lot of the stuff that it is. so you've got a bit of corroboration here you've got a bit of a completely separate independent source here but they all agree on the main stuff which is like the crucifixion and the resurrection yeah. you know that like that stuff i'm always come back to and be like this is the stuff you can't do without they always come back to the main beats of the story exactly exactly you can embellish a bit here it's okay if you get this a bit wrong but this stuff this stuff right here, that's crucial, you know? Yeah. So I, I quite I quite like that. So obviously, I, I appreciate for for us in the 21st century, 30 years is a long time to wait for a biography. But in terms of <laughs> studying in antiquity, that's basically a newsflash.
1: You know, like breaking news, Twitter alert, you know? Yeah, basically. <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of historical accuracy. Not only yeah. that,
0: but another thing to think about is like the number of copies... Produced was insane. The New Testament has been preserved in more manuscripts than any other ancient work of literature, with over 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts catalogued, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,300 manuscripts in various other ancient languages, including Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopic, Coptic, and Armenian.
1: Jeez, yeah. So, like, that's, that's at least four languages. Those
0: dudes were busy. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, they the, had,
1: they had stuff yeah. on. The
0: dates of these manuscripts range from uh, 125 AD uh, all the way through to the the introduction of the printing press in Germany in the 15th I'm century. I'm sorry,
1: I can't come to Temple. I'm, ne- I'm just busy the Bible into Coptic.
0: Why is that important? Why does it matter how many copies of the Gospel? In simple terms, these books are copied out by hand, right? So that leaves you a much bigger margin for error than if you're just printing something. Sure. So the more copies you have, the more you can look through and try to establish a consensus. So if there is a difference in the text, you can spot it, compare it with others, go, ah, that's not that's not quite right there
1: sure yeah you've got enough different versions where you can cross reference everything and go ah that doesn't match that doesn't match exactly. that's not a true representation of what we're trying to talk about here
0: exactly so if you imagine like if they're all just slightly different a little bit here there and a a, a comma here and a, a full stop there worst of it you can look at the all of them and try and work out like where the differences are in each of them does that make sense yeah that and- makes sense and you can work out, well, like, what's the consensus point on that? These are all things that I've been learning about by, by sort of listening to this case for Christ book, which I'm um, absolutely sort of hooks I, me I, in.
1: Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I mean, it seems, um, it seems fascinating. Yeah, I, I guess, like, given enough time and enough different accurate copies of it, then its authentic. well maybe not its so authenticity, but its accuracy as to what the words were at the time. there's a lot that can be said for it in terms of it being accurate nowadays, especially like, you know, it being the basically being the most sold book on the planet, right? Yeah.
0: (laughs) I mean, so this is why when, when somebody says, ah, yeah, but what if you believe what you believe, and it all turns out to have just been a spelling mistake, and you're like, nah, dude, you know, that's not that's not that's probably not it's, a thing I, you know? it's
1: more I, I, obviously as we know this is a very well established fact on the show that i am an atheist like, yeah i heard something about that yeah no i've mentioned it once but uh, <laughs> even i can see the flaw in that argument like where it's because a belief system isn't based on spelling mistakes it's based on mm. the it's it's based on the whole sort of fundamentals and the and the what it is trying to teach you as a lesson and how you yeah. live your life and it's like a. I I I see all these i see religion as kind of like a almost like a set of rules and guidelines to live your life by if you would like to live your life to the to the correct specification of your chosen god yeah as it were and that's not always that that's open to fluidity uh, mm. Because I mean at the end of the day humans are by and large pretty stupid. So you know if you give them exact instructions, they will find a way to mess it up. But if you give them interpretive instructions, likely in a roundabout way, they may find themselves at the same destination. So mm. you know I, 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 yeah, I, I, the spelling mistake thing just seems, and this is coming from me who is but was basically born cynical kind of too cynical yeah I mean? yeah so. yeah
0: now to summarize you can look at everything i've talked about here and say well yeah that's great but all those sources are biased in favor of jesus because obviously a person can't walk on water they can't resurrect themselves from the dead or make a storm disappear just by giving it a telling off and like that's a totally reasonable assertion and that is something i can i can sympathize with i think to remember is that in the ancient world the idea of objective dispassionate recording of factual historical events wasn't really a thing but even if it were you you can't really be objective or unbiased when it comes to jesus christ in the same way that a drowning man can't be unbiased about a lifeboat it it's kind of a life or death situation. <laughs> do You know what I mean? It's it's kind of important. I awesome. see.
1: I see what you're saying because it, it comes back to the idea of of being saved, doesn't it? Like you know, it's 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 kind of like, hmm. Don't believe in Jesus and go to hell. Believe in Jesus, go to heaven. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. A binary decision. I can so, work with this. Yeah. So if you do believe in him,
0: <laughs> then people are going to say you're biased in his favor. But the the point I want to end on, and this was something that I was I was reminded of recently, is that it's not my job to persuade you that jesus was really the son of god in fact jesus as best as i can tell didn't say anything about persuading people it, it didn't interest him all he told us to do was to tell people about him that's it that's that's all i have to do so long as i've told you all this stuff then i've done what i was told to do and then what you do with that information is completely down to you
1: that sounds fair to me that you know <laughs> i will and and again even with all the insurmountable evidence that you've presented me over all these many many episodes. Yeah, I'm still I still am the person I am. And that's quite, okay. Quite right too.
0: Anyway, we have some reviews. We love a review. I say we reviews. It. We it, it is a review. Um, we love a review. <laughs> so Lucy Singular. Ryan has been a massive supporter of us, pretty much from the get go. And she wrote something. Yes, Lucy. She actually posted something up on her Instagram a while back. She said, talking about our little horror mini series. Oh, she right. says, "I've really enjoyed this season, and would particularly recommend the episode about Constantine." Giles and Phil who present this, a Christian and an atheist, make accessible not only the religious angles of the film that they look at, but also the superhero canon from which they're drawn, which for lay people like me can be a bit impenetrable at times. Thank you so much, Lucy. It is Thank you. Just the teensy scraps of affirmation that we get makes us feel all warm Validate and inside. Me.
1: <laughs> Validate me. Validate <laughs> me. Just Please. <laughs> No, yeah. The, I, the, yeah, thank you, Lucy. That does mean a lot, and it's 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 good to hear that we can make impenetrable topics feel a little bit more accessible. That is that is really good to hear. That's part of the point, part of the reason we do this. So,
0: awesome source. Okay, ladies and gents, that is us done for the year it's been a little bit of a quieter year for us this this year round we're sorry about that we will have loads more stuff coming up for you next year we're going to do a whole season on superheroes and i cannot (laughs) wait yeah 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 yeah. if you want to be a guest on that just let me know you come tell me what you want to talk about it'll save me a whole lot of time tracking down guests for it I mean, it, no. I'd I'd be a guest
1: on it, but I'm already here. Yeah, that you're means, already um, here. You know, you'd have to go so away know. to come back again. It's all that effort. It'd just you be know? awkward. I'd have to put on a different voice. I'd have to wear a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> It'd just be. I only monocle. have a mustache. Yeah. Which then, is awkward. I'd have to shave, you'd have to the shave moustache off to put the mustache and put one on. it back. I, it,
0: it, it's really complicated. I don't know if it's worth all the effort. Do you know what I mean? No, I think I'll just stay
1: the co host. If you just be the co
0: host and I'll just find some other guests for stuff. Fair enough in the meantime ladies and gentlemen if you're driving home for Christmas now if you are uh, dealing with <laughs> obnoxious and annoying re- relatives at Christmas or if you're having a great time or if you are overdosed on turkey and chocolate we just want to say I where
1: you were going with that <laughs> I'm so yeah. glad you said turkey oh, that's, a, that's a whole other
0: thing we just wanted to know that we are so grateful that you listened to us, and we hope you have a really Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.
1: Thank you so much for, for listening in. If you've listened into to every episode, just know that it means everything to me and Giles. And have a wonderful Christmas, and have a wonderful New Year as well. Awesome. we'll see you soon. Bye!
0: Bye! God Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and... Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by... Julie Walsh. And our theme tune was composed by... Rick Lee. Waffle editing by...
3: Natalie Minnicker.
0: God in Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review. Unless it's a one star. In which case, write out your review on £50 notes. You can be as in-depth and abusive as you want, so long as it's written on legal tender, which you then send to God in Film headquarters. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, you guys.